All right. I am uh, now joined uh, by our good friend Kuba from uh, This is Revolution, uh, the uh, foreign policy crew on that show, uh, who has kindly agreed to uh, to come on and talk to us about what I guess at this point is probably not the end of the world, but uh, is, is is still uh, is still interested uh, in uh, our, you know. The uh, the standoff uh, over uh, over Ukraine. How you doing today, Kuba? I'm doing all right. How are you doing? Man? I am. Uh, I'm pretty good. Uh, this is uh, yeah. It's good. Uh, some uh, some interesting things going on that I'm going to have to be vague about for just uh, you know at least uh, at least for today. But I'll be vague. Are these book related or Putin related? Uh, yeah, mostly, I don't know if, is it Putin related? If, if it's a, uh, if it's like a low level Russian official who's actually delivering the suitcases of rubles. <laughs> the, um, well, I think that, um, if the payoff crosses a certain threshold that had to okay. be signed off at the Kremlin. So, oh yeah, no, that makes you know, sense. It's like one of those tax things where, <laughs> as long as you keep it below forty thousand rubles, I think it's fine. It just comes out of petty cash, right? But yeah, right above that, you know, there there are forms that have to be signed. Yeah, no, that makes Cyrillic, sense. like it gets messy. <laughs> right. Yeah, I, I have. Uh, there have been a couple times that I've I've got on. Um, uh, shows on on RT or Radio Sputnik, and so so I always enjoy telling my wife that I have to you know do my communications with Moscow. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, so um, so it seems to me as a um, as somebody who's been a you know semi casual observer uh, like. Uh, most of the world, very strangely, I, I haven't been that focused on it, which, again, I think is a little strange since considering the number of times that the United States and back then the Soviet Union uh, came to the uh, the brink of uh, nuclear annihilation in the 20th century, the possibility, however slim, of, of an actual <laughs> war with Russia that uh, United States troops were involved with somehow has been sort of surprisingly low on the national um, priority list. I think it's, it's, I think it's sort of come somewhere after um, Whoopi Goldberg and Joe Rogan in Americans, uh, you know, list of, of news priorities, but, um, but it has been, uh, but obviously it has been interested. It seems to be in a slightly strange place right now, as far as I can tell, like on the one hand, um, there are these reports of, of Russia withdrawing some of its troops uh, from, uh, from the border. And on the other hand, there are these, like, it, it feels like every six hours there's some sort of, like, uh, screaming headline about how, you know, Russia is going to invade in the next 15 minutes. It's, it is a strange situation right now. And one of the difficulties of trying to figure out what's going on is mm-hmm. that there's a temptation to apply a geopolitical strategic logic to the behavior of the different actors, whether it's the EU, whether it's the United States, NATO, uh, Ukraine, Russia. But the actually relevant actors are not states. States are not unitary actors in that way. When they're compelled by virtue of an existential threat to mobilize and security becomes their number one priority, then you can start applying some of that logic. But in the case of the United States, especially foreign policy is less subject to those kinds of strategic considerations than what you could call the blob mentality, the Mm -hmm. particular worldview that is hegemonic inside the think tanks, the um, Department of Defense, State Department, the political institutions that craft foreign policy. And in Ukraine, too, you have to consider uh, Zelensky's position. He is trying to keep the country together as Mm -hmm. a 
um, Jewish outsider president, while some of the most organized forces within Ukraine are um, anti-Semitic nationalists, what we could what we could consider far right groups. Yeah. So, on the one hand, he has to deal with uh, Putin on the security threat. On the other hand, he has to work with NATO and with Western powers that have this 1996 worldview about mm-hmm. their own place in the system, the health of the system, the um, relative power of the United States compared to Russia, uh, as well as these nationalist groups that not only are politically well-organized, but have several paramilitary units within the uh, Ukrainian defense establishment that are essentially party militia. And this is a very dicey situation for him. He has to consider not just his political survival, but Mm -hmm. if worse comes to worse, his actual physical survival and safety. Um, So the decision-making that he is subject to has all of these pressures placed on it far outside of just the strategic calculus of how do you um, prevent a Russian incursion or how do you handle the international relationships to preserve Ukrainian sovereignty. So it starts to look very complicated when you um, break apart these national formulations, Ukraine, America, Europe, and look at the people who are actually uh, executing the um, security policy within the region. The most rational in a kind of geopolitical uh, perspective uh, player is probably Russia, uh, because for them, this is a fundamental security matter. And between the disengagement that's they've been forced into with um, international um, the international economy through sanctions and other uh, measures that put in place to isolate them, there is a kind of autonomy for the Russian government. They're not subject to outside pressure in the same way that the government of Ukraine is that. Um, uh, Zelensky, President Zelensky is. So, um, when you hear about these diplomatic moves, it's unclear what's going on. Um, has there been some kind of deal that hasn't been publicized, uh, reached between uh, NATO, Ukraine, and Russia? Is there some negotiations that we're not privy to? that are addressing some of um, the demands that Russia made. If Putin goes away with no concrete gains after all this brinksmanship, that could wound him politically within Russia. Yeah. A bad outcome for him. Yeah. So I'm curious about what that looks like, but I mean, first I I do just want to like loop back a little bit. So, uh, so, so what is, um, like from Putin's perspective, like what's the main thing that he's, that he like hopes to get out of this? Well, the crucial security, um, goal for Russia is prevention of Ukraine from becoming a NATO ally or of uh, forging some kind of um, durable defense agreement with uh, the NATO powers. If um, Ukrainian territory becomes a springboard for um, Western bases, then the type of pressure that could be placed on Russia uh, would amount to an existential threat. It would mm-hmm. be like China being able to base troops in um, Mexico or Canada. Mm-hmm. And the 
there's an additional question about his legacy and his domestic legitimacy. He, his, one of the big selling points for Putin as a leader is that he brought to an end the weakness and the chaos of, and the humiliation of the Yeltsin period. Yeah. And he domestically uh, tamed the oligarchs and um, managed to damp down organized crime, which is not mm-hmm. to say that Russia is a, necessarily a law and order society, right. but it's no longer subject to uh, forces outside the state control. And internationally, he has prevented Russia from just being uh, subject to American diktat like it was over Serbia and Kosovo um, during the uh, Yeltsin presidency. The biggest symbolic um, legacy of that period of Western ascendance has been the expansion of NATO further east and east and east. Um, Estonia, the border of Estonia, a NATO uh, member state, is maybe a hundred miles away from St. Petersburg. Mm-hmm. So imagine if um, Chinese or Russian forces were within striking distance of Houston. Right. Um, so for Putin, um, and in some way he's achieved some uh, some of these goals already just through the intimidation effect of the military buildup. Uh, the United States and other and some other Western countries have shut down their embassies and have pulled military advisors from Ukraine. So he's managed to disrupt the integration of Ukraine into um, Western political and defense um, networks. Yeah. They can always come back. But that might be part of a deal to de-escalate. That now that they're gone, they won't return. Yeah. And he, um, with the demands that were issued early on, mm-hmm. I think that the least that he can settle for is um, de facto postponement, de facto abandonment of Ukrainian uh, NATO candidacy. In a lot of ways, it's entirely notional anyway, uh, because one of the requirements for NATO membership is to not be involved in border disputes. Right. And as long as the Crimea isn't returned, as long as uh, Donetsk and Lugansk continue to be under separatist control, then Ukraine fails that test. Uh. So, so I am. Um, I, I do want to get to Tom's call in a second, but I. So I, I'm curious about what the, like, what domestic political consequences would realistically look like for Vladimir Putin, given what, you know, Russia's, you know, nominally democratic but you know pretty controlled political system looks like right now. Well, Putin has to consider the, even though he's managed to establish a kind of monopoly on, on state control Mm -hmm. and he's managed to diminish or um, eliminate most of the Yeltsin era oligarchs. There is this roiling protest movement that springs up every few years. um, Most recently uh, concerning Navalny, um, But before that, in the Russian Far East, there were significant protests. Pro-Kremlin candidates were defeated. Um, And there's a kind of bifurcated view of Putin among the population, especially older people who remember the Yeltsin period, see him favorably because even though there are significant curbs on individual freedom, even though uh, sanctions and bad relations with the West inhibit the ability of Russians to travel, move, 
um, work internationally. The, you know, it's still possible. It's just, it potentially would have been much easier with a warmer relationship, especially with Europe. Um, but the younger generation of Russians, they're in a similar position to young people elsewhere, which is that they see a system that isn't really responsive to their needs, that favors insiders, that um, doesn't address the purpose of government, mm-hmm. but instead kind of survives um, for its own sake as a uh, not quite parasitic, but not entirely um, responsible uh, force in society. So if he walks away with nothing, and one thing to note is that the protests aren't necessarily all pussy riot either. Mm-hmm. Uh, Navalny, for instance, has many of the same policy positions and many of the same um, political values as Putin. He favors a strong Russia. He's a Russian nationalist. Um, he favors a strong state. He's suspicious of the West in terms of its influence on uh, Russian society and its goals when when it's dealing with Russia. Um, and part of his popularity stemmed from the fact that, not to apply too simplistic uh, a framework, but yeah. he could outflank Putin on the right. Mm-hmm. And if Putin can't spin this as a victory, but all of this brinksmanship, all of this um, pressure for nothing, walks away with nothing again, um, then that creates an opening on the right for a nationalist attack on Putin. That's where his legitimacy is the strongest. So that could, um, that could significantly damage him in a similar way to what's happening in Hungary right now, where the anti-Victor Orban coalition includes not just what we consider to be leftist parties and, and liberals, but also the far-right Jobbik party. And if the liberals and leftists already hate you, it doesn't take <laughs> that many nationalists to um, tip the scales uh, towards a political crisis. Um, Putin is also old. And he's been around for a long time. Um, he's healthy, so he might have another 10, 10 years of, of ruling in him. But the succession question is also open. And there will be um, forces within the Russian elite that might try to use this as an as a opportunity to jockey for position and set themselves up for a post-Putin Russia. Fair enough. Uh, okay. All right. Well, that makes sense to me. Let's uh, let's get Tom in here. So let's see. Make next caller. Tom, what's on your mind? Hey, what's up? Can you guys hear me? Yep. Well, All right. Great. So uh, I just had a, uh, I don't know, a little, maybe a weird question. One thing I think is kind of ironic about all this, like, um, Russiagate hysteria is it seems like the media or some part of the public have really kind of blown Putin up into this, like, you know, galaxy brain, genius IQ, Machiavellian dictator, and, you know, like he's hyper-competent and all this other stuff. But here's maybe the thing that, like, confuses me about his whole thing, because uh, I don't have a whole lot of knowledge about recent Russian history, but to my knowledge, I do know that they invaded Georgia and Chechnya. I think it was, was it Georgia in the late 90s and Chechnya in 2008, or was it the other way around? Oh, it's the so, other way around. Right. Okay. I, mean, I mean, Chechnya was part of the Russian, uh, Chechnya was a separatist region as part of Russia, but I mean, that, that fight it was in the, in the late 90s, and, and the, I mean, I mean, I'm sure Cuba can, like, speak to this in much greater detail, but, but I, I know that uh, the South Ossetia was the separatist part of Georgia that the that the Russians like kind of went into and ate of. I, I think it was two thousand eight. Yeah. So, oh, I'm sorry. No, you're gonna. I'm sorry about that. No. Um, that's right. The 
there were two separate Chechen wars um, during the 90s, and um, Putin brought them to an end. He won. Um, not a negotiated settlement, but uh, outright Russian victory um, against Chechen separatism. And then um, the, the conflict over South Ossetia in Georgia, South Ossetia and another region, Abkhazia, there's a third region, Ajaria, but they're on the Turkish side, so they, uh, they don't really figure into this. Those areas had basically stood up their own separatist government and Georgia to try to pave the way for its own NATO candidacy moved into South Ossetia militarily to reintegrate the territory and to settle that territorial dispute. That's what triggered the Russian invasion. And very quickly, uh, Russian forces not only secured South Ossetia, but were on their way to um, Tbilisi before they decided to uh, stop short um, since they had already claimed the territory that they that they wanted. And um, the Shakashvili pro-Bush, pro-U.S. government had been fatally shaken by that conflict. Okay, so would you say... Um... Uh, like so here's the the thing i guess maybe why i have partially mixed feelings i'm i'm not like a supporter of war in you know the ukraine i am like i am a veteran and trust me uh i i would not want to see it happen i wouldn't i definitely would hope i wouldn't get conscripted to go back ukraine would be nothing but shit awful trench warfare and you know we wouldn't be fighting guys in sandals with ak's fighting like a professional military which i feel like a lot of people who are pro Ukraine intervention don't realize like it, it will be a return to like very brutal conventional warfare and not just like handling insurgencies and stuff like that. But with Crimea, um, maybe the comparison isn't good, but I see a bit of a similarity with like Taiwan, for instance, or maybe not so much with like Chechnya and places like that. But no, that's probably a terrible comparison. OK, so here's what I'm not getting. Russia does all this kind of like uh, aggressive shit with these countries that are tangentially associated with NATO. NATO, I think Georgia has some kind of relationship with the NATO countries, but isn't or wasn't a NATO member. But my understanding of his beef with Ukraine is really he wants to deter any more uh, countries from joining NATO. But isn't that kind of like isn't he kind of shooting himself in the foot? Like, isn't the increase of the potential of Russian aggression going to scare countries into joining NATO? I don't know. Like, it, it seems like such a stupid move for him. Well, I think that um, part of part of the um, part of the reason for the buildup is to demonstrate that Russia is no longer weak, that Russia poses a threat. And by forcing NATO to scramble in response, and just like NATO left Georgia out to dry um, in the, during the invasion of uh, South Ossetia, I don't think that there's any risk that NATO forces will actually intervene to protect Ukraine. And from what we've seen, which is not an increase of NATO forces within Ukraine, and there were military trainers, military advisors in place that were um, equipping and supplying and training Ukrainian forces, they've all been pulled out because no NATO country wants to lose its own people. And that sends a very strong message that unless you're an actual member, until you formally join, then you can't expect NATO to actually come to your defense. Even this buildup of forces is enough to scare them away, scare them all the way back to Romania, all the way back to Poland. The forces that have been deployed in the region by NATO troops and by NATO countries have gone into Estonia, gone into Poland, gone into Romania. They haven't gone to Ukraine. 
So this illustrates that the West is not a serious partner unless you're a formal, formal NATO member. And even then, um, you know, we'll see. And the, um, he might be able to uh, extort um, or demand some types of assurances about uh, the permanent removal that those NATO advisors won't return or that uh, the Ukrainian membership uh, to NATO is going to be just pushed down the road uh, for the foreseeable future. Uh, any kind of um, disruption in the integration of Ukraine into pro-NATO defense networks does set back the danger uh, to Russia. When it comes to, in, a, in the case of an actual conflict, I, I think you're right. It would, be a, it would be a much different type of war than American interventions in Iraq or Afghanistan. And which is one reason why I don't think there's any appetite on the part of NATO to fight it. And the Ukrainian population is ambivalent about Russia. Crimea, when it was um, taken over, was actually significantly pro-Russian. There hasn't been an insurgency there. There isn't a Ukrainian resistance movement based in uh, Crimea to try to take it back. The strongest nationalist forces in Ukraine are in the West, uh, in Galicia, the border region um, east of Poland. And ideologically, they descend from far-right nationalist groups that uh, collaborated with the Third Reich during World War II, were forced underground during the Soviet period. And the rest of Ukrainian society is uneasy about them. So um, while the United States is used to fighting in countries where very quickly an anti-American resistance takes shape, and you have a very limited base of support for an American presence, a Russian intervention, especially in uh, the region around Odessa, which is over, uh, which is majority Russophone, or in Kharkiv, uh, the central part of um, Ukraine, those areas might be amenable to an imposed settlement that brought them into the Russian sphere, um, or at least reconcilable to it. So I think that the alienation of uh, the Ukrainian population is less of a risk than it would be if you were facing off against uh, a much more solidly united um, nationalist country like Poland or, um, or Romania, Turkey, the Georgian parts of Georgia. And that's part of the calculus for making this confrontation about Ukraine and not a different, uh, different region. Okay. So with like, so maybe this isn't the best comparison. That's probably an awful comparison. Who knows? But is because again, I'm terrible at history. I don't know shit. All right, but the only comparison I've really seen besides the Taiwan comparison, and maybe this is just jingoistic nonsense, but is the comparison to the invasion of the Sudetenland, I think it was, that Hitler invaded, kicked off, kind of sort of kicked off World War II. And I mean, his reason was much the same. I'm not doing the Putin as Hitler bullshit. Don't, don't worry. But, you know, his reason was much the same. Look, this is a place with a high concentration of ethnic Germans. And we're just kind of taking them back into the fold. And so when, you know, I waste my time, you know, going through the Reddit or Twitter comment sections about the conflict, I see like two narratives that I'm really kind of sympathetic to. One, there's like, this is more just, you know, Cold War, neoliberal, imperialistic bullshit from the U.S. You know, they, you know, breaking on these people just want to line their pockets. But then on the other hand, I see a lot of like, you know, very online leftist types, and maybe their opinions don't matter, but who 
make a lot of noise about Ukrainian resistance to a potential Russian invasion, just being all fascist and talking about, well, you know, well, why would you trust these people? These are the people who sided with the Nazis or whatever. And I guess maybe the only reason why maybe that confuses me is like, you know, even if the Ukrainian resistance is just like died in the wool neo-Nazis, one that assumes that the Russians aren't themselves an extremely reactionary, nationalistic and aggressive force themselves. And uh, two, well, not two. I feel like my point is dumb. I don't know. Well, I, I guess you can just follow up on that. Why it is or isn't like the Sudeten land? Is it more like Taiwan or is it just like a unique example in another? So I point out some differences between Ukraine and Taiwan, um, which is that the Taiwanese government can point to a successful economic miracle a uh, much longer period of administration, which built up, developed the Taiwanese economy, the transition to democracy, which has seen honest elections, a relatively free society. Um, Taiwan is much more developed, much more successful than Ukraine. Ukraine is actually still poorer than, I believe, at the end of the Soviet Union. Uh, Ukrainian national governments through the 90s and 2000s have been different flavors of terrible. And the extent to which there has been development in uh, Ukraine has been strongly tied to foreign um, economies, either the EU in the Western parts or Russia in the Donbass and the oil and gas sector. So the Ukrainian government, uh, especially, like the idea of the Ukrainian nation, maybe that has um, broader appeal, but it's hard to die for a government that kind of sucks that much. And when it comes to the Sudetenland, the Russian, there is no Russian Putinist Mein Kampf. Um, Russian society has a serious demographic challenge. It is um, much more ice, um, much further behind economically than, than Germany was compared to its, its rivals in the run-up to World War II. And the, um, well, Czechoslovakia, uh, before the Second World War, wasn't much of a threat to um, uh, the Third Reich. A Ukraine, which is a NATO power, triggers some legitimate security concerns where even if a Green Party, a Swedish-style um, coalition of socialists and Greens ruled in Moscow, they would still be uneasy about their security situation, which to me makes the moves by Putin, um, there's a pragmatic justification. There could also be a more sinister one, but um, it's impossible to just chalk it up to pure um, aggression or expansionism. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I think that, like, and I also find what Tom is saying pretty revealing. Like, maybe this is just obvious, but, like, it, it seems like um, everybody has to make everything some version of World War II for it to, like, make sense to them morally. So... You know, the uh, so one version of that is well, Putin's justification for you know the annexation of Crimea has like a kind of echo to it of um, of Hitler's justification for the annexation of Sudetenland. Um, so you know, Putin is like is like Hitler, but then the other version of it is um, that the uh, is that uh, you know the the Ukrainian you know like the Ukrainians. Uh, are all Nazis, you know, so so it's like World War II in the other direction. And, you know, it might not be that there's like nothing to either one of those, but but it is, I, I don't know. I mean, I think it does say something about the way that as a culture, we're sort of collectively incapable of processing these situations without like filtering it through like World War II, because that's our, you know, like that's, that's our big like myth for making sense of it. I think that there's an instinct on the part of many Americans, especially right or left, to moralize foreign uh, relations. There's good guys, there's bad guys, 
there's people who hate us, there's people who hate freedom, and there's these uh, pro-Western Democrats that we need to protect, while a lot of conflicts come down to local issues that don't uh, track onto an American left-right political spectrum or uh, an American World War II derivative uh, moral sensibility about war, conflict, interstate relations. Right. And I think that um, the there's also one other point in Russia's favor, and I think that this is a, a major difference between Czechoslovakia and Ukraine, is that while Czechoslovakia um, had a democratically elected responsible government, the Ukrainian government, um, the pro-Western government that was uh, installed after the Maidan uprising, that toppled a legitimate pro-Russian democratically elected president and ushered in uh, extra-constitutional order. Right. So... Very corrupt, but at least elected, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Yanukovych, not a great guy, but he won the election. Yeah, right. He won it fair and square, um, or at least as fair and square as, as any other election in Ukraine. Uh, Zelensky has come in with a clear mandate, but um, that doesn't change the fact that that entire post-Maidan government is the fruit of uh, the violent overthrow of a democratically elected president. Right. Okay, I want to get in uh, Mateo's uh, question before we go, so make next caller. Uh, Mateo, what's on your mind? Hey, uh, I'm, you know, I, I pretty much agree with all of uh, Cuba's takes on political stuff, which is nice and refreshing because uh, this is a really cool platform and I'm really enjoying it, a really cool medium, but a lot of the uh, – a lot of the discourse like on Colin, just like it is on Twitter uh, around like sensible discussions of Putin is kind of stuck in this uh, Glenn Greenwald, Tucker Carlson sphere, you know, where there's a big, heavy reality distortion field where Victor Orban and Putin are like saviors to conservatism. And they kind of, you know, do that narrative in kind of a backdoor way. Uh, so it's nice to hear from, uh, from Cuba here that, the reality that, like, you know, Russia is under a lot of demographic pressure. Uh, you know, COVID is uh, taking numbers off their gross population. They don't have the kind of birth rate to reverse the uh, probably well over a million of excess deaths they've had from COVID. Um, and they're really getting the nasty one-third Delta, two-thirds Omicron that, uh, like, the Midwest has gotten lately. You know, the really nasty blend. Um and they're probably spreading it in terms of putting all their soldiers in tents, you know, around uh, Ukraine. That's probably the worst possible thing you could do with uh, Omicron. Anyways, I guess my question for Cuba is um, how does how does like the whole scenario where Viktor Orban plays footsie with Xi by having a Chinese university there um, kind of plays up running interference for Putin in Europe, uh, tries to charm uh, the disgusting American right wing and, you know, Murdoch media, the, the Murdoch, uh, you know, Elaine Chao, Wendy Dang media with uh, Tucker Carlson and other propagandists like that. How is that finally going to like end for uh, Fidesz and Victor Orban? You were talking about Yobica earlier, which, of course, was illegalized by uh, Orban in an attempt to consolidate the right, right, like three or four years ago. If you want to consolidate the left or right in a authoritarian state of course all you have to do is just illegalize a party he tried to do that um i don't really i'm not really convinced that whatever coalition you know of former communists and whatnot can really extricate him just because he has that dictatorial ability of kind of franchising out so many pieces of the economy and i think that'll make it almost impossible to get rid of him but how does uh how do you think this this next chapter plays out kuba in terms of like the influence that china is trying to buy with Orban, Orban trying to be kind of this pro-Putin voice and play that off against the Dutch and, um, and Anglo's. How do you see it? How do you see that that resolving? Are we still going to be hearing Victor Orban fluff jobs on Fox News in a couple of years, or is there something different coming down the pike? Well, I I think that the um, the next election in Hungary is uh, all the polling I've seen 
as the anti-Orban coalition, um, very close to Fidesz. I don't know how it will go. The um, while I think that Orban does have um, authoritarian instincts, he's limited in how far he can take them by uh, EU membership, by the uh, the fact that uh, Hungary is economically, militarily dependent on uh, the West. He can't just abrogate democracy. So he's done the next best thing, which is gerrymander, um, stack institutions with um, Fidesz partisans, uh, basically tilt the playing field as heavily as possible in his favor. So that might be enough. That might not. If he sticks around, um, which is entirely possible, then I think that there's a risk that um, Hungary becomes a kind of um, sort of um, fascist international, uh, a place where groups like the American sort of Tucker Carlson right um, can... Well, clearly, I mean, obviously, mm-hmm. obviously it already is that. I mean, Murdoch is oh, yeah. using Budapest and Tucker Carlson as a stage set, um, you know, in terms of some kind of like conservative dreamland. It's almost like, you know, the Central European version of the weird uh, Epstein and Wexner project in Columbus, Ohio, right? He's trying to kind of market, uh, you know, Murdoch and Tucker are trying to present this vision of it kind of as that, as some fascist international dreamland where, you know, the men are men and the women are women and, uh, and you know, the white man is and firmly on the top of them, right? I'm sorry, the, go ahead. And the, and the Muslims are gone. Well, yeah, absolutely. The, I mean, you know, for, for me, what I find, what I find most offensive about, uh, about the kind of uh, Glenn Greenwald reactionary take on current politics is the fact that like, you know, in something like Kazakhstan, which kind of was a big news thing five or six weeks ago and then totally swept under the rug, Kazakhstan is yet another example of a big Muslim majority country that's just put right under the boot heel because they're kind of, you know, treated like children by their, uh, by, you know, their big neighbor, China. And of course their, uh, neighbors currently running their house in their kitchen in Russia. Uh, and this is yet another example of geopolitics where, uh, it's just a fait accompli that you can kind of treat the Muslims like shit. And that's, you know, and totally, totally locked them out of any political process in Kazakhstan, despite them being, you know, two thirds of a very energy rich, very large nation. Right. And I think that's kind of, you know, the cultural note that never really fails in terms of the right wing that, that Putin's pretty obvious about, you know, playing that note. And of course, you know, it, it could only exist in this kind of vacuum for uh, Muslims with uh, somebody truly satanic like MBS, that if there's any geopolitical situation where Muslims are suffering, he automatically takes the opposite approach and automatically sucks up to Modi, sucks up to Putin. Um, you know, so that's, that's kind of a, a theme all over the world, right? Well, um, I'd point out that the governing elite in Kazakhstan is still Muslim. And the institutions aren't controlled by Orthodox Christians um, or, or Russophones. Um, it's Kazakhs domestically that are in charge, and they've. Um, they but don't you agree colluded. that don't you agree that this is kind of the events five or six weeks ago was kind of a reformation? Oh yeah, where things were reorganized with you know, with uh, whoever Peskov agreed got the nod it's firmly it, at the top, and and the other guys it, out the window literally, right? It reminded me very much of the Soviet interventions in the Eastern Bloc, um, the crush, the Prague Spring, and uh, the Hungarian uprising. And that's, uh, Muslim or not, um, if you're a small state um, or a a smaller state, Kazakhstan is large, populous, but it's dwarfed by Russia and China, then you find yourself in the sphere of greater powers and they unfortunately tend to um, shape, sometimes even determine what's politically possible. Like the way that you described um, the reality for Muslim countries, you know, Kazakhstan is kind of a Russian Guatemala or a Honduras. 
those countries are similarly ones in which the ultimate uh, vote on what kind of political arrangements they can have or what kind of economic arrangements they can have is made by the regional superpower rather the, than uh, the Monroski doctrine, right? We could call that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's that's a good one. Um, and um, I think that Hungary uh, right now you have all of these Western democracies from the United States to Canada recently with the uh, occupation of Ottawa by uh, the trucker protesters um, all across Europe as well, where a um, there's still establishment liberal elites in power, but there's a palpable sense that the system is failing. It's not addressing people's grievances. It failed at COVID. Um, economic arrangements are unfair. And that energy, um, unfortunately, is best mobilized and galvanized by the anti-establishment right rather than the left. Uh, yeah, and you made, you made a good point in terms of, I, I, think, uh, I think you really see, I mean, one, you see a really kind of weird cultural paradigm where the counterculture energy is kind of from the right in the same way like the 1968 Paris riots were definitely from the left. I think what a lot of right-wingers uh, who don't necessarily understand history all that well and are kind of grasping at things, they love to point at... Um, a, key, a KGB guy, uh, Yuri Bezmenov, and his speech that he gave an interview around 82, I think right around the brief uh, Andropov uh, era. That, that's right. Um, We're going to and, demoralize you. Right. And I think I think if people looked at that and they flipped it in the funhouse mirror and realized he was really talking about institutions on the right, which much, much more naturally plug into Russian culture in terms of the way the Orthodox Church can be used kind of as a cudgel for – uh, hardcore reactionary politics and also kind of as a, you know, underground way of, of taking resources, uh, you know, when when the Kremlin wants to use. I mean, obviously, they didn't use the Russian Orthodox Church as a colonial type device under the uh, Soviets, because that would be, you know, bizarre, beyond counterintuitive. But, you know, th the whole kind of subversion aspect from the right via Christianity, obviously, when you look at the truckers, the truckers, when you scratch them just a little bit, they locked up uh, Pastor Archer, uh, of course, in Albany, uh, crazy Polish preacher. When you scratch them just a little bit, you get pretty much hardcore Christian nationalism across the board in terms of who like Tamara, Lich, and Pat King are in terms of the organizational power. And you probably find that even in the, um, the uh, rogue uh, military uh, police uh, elements that helped organize that up in Canada, you know, because it really was kind of a a uh, officer Smedley, you know, right wing plot that sort of set that in motion and helped the truckers get established so easily in Ottawa, while you know, uh, big kid uh, adult cities like Toronto and uh, and Montreal and Quebec City obviously saw the the circus coming. Uh, I think it's pretty safe to say that Ottawa's political culture was compromised by those right wing elements on the inside, and unfortunately, I mean. That ties in with Ukraine, right? I mean, the whole reason that Yanukovych got kicked out of town is because the right-wing types are uh, effective in the field, in the theater. They enjoy doing what they see as kicking commie butt, and they do it well, which is kind of what Maidan was, and, and you know, uh, and kind of why it's a cursed event that maybe is ultimately bad for all three countries that were related to it, you know? And um, just to tie it back to your question about Hungary, um, all of these far-right... Uh, tendencies, Canada, U.S., Western Europe, um, right now are in opposition. Right now they're forming a, a sort of counter-establishment, counter-elite. The danger of Hungary is that it could serve as a model uh, for working um, far-right governance. And, and Tucker's well, obviously very aware of that and uses it as a stage set for exactly that reason. He's already way yeah. ahead of us on that. Which is why um, so much is riding on the uh, outcome of the next election. And which is why a coalition uh, between Javik, which is even more uh, nationalist, more chauvinist than um, Fidesz, with the other opposition parties was possible. Because if Hungary under, if Orbanism can succeed then and consolidate itself, then um, 
it might not be possible to dethrone for a generation. And already in Poland, the Law and Justice Party is trying to execute the same playbook. Um, that's another uh, sort of reactionary government to watch. And the tragedy of the left is the best that we can do um, is these sort of Scandinavian countries that um, have too long a history of being integrated into the liberal national international order for them to really feel um, like an alternative. Well, Hungary is that for the right. Right. Yeah. Uh, that makes sense. And in a, in a strange sort of way, if, uh, if, uh, you know, Sweden was, uh, was, was just been, you know, uh, becoming a social democratic country for the first time, uh, it would have a different kind of shine to it. But, uh, yeah, this has been really good. Uh, Kuba, thank you. Uh, thank you so much for taking your time out of the day to, uh, to do this. Uh, this is, um, you know, hope, uh, people, you know, people got a lot out of it, certainly got, you know, much more, uh, informed perspective than, that I think you can, uh, get if you, um, you know, if, if you primarily get your, uh, impression of this stuff from either cable news or left Twitter. So, uh, thank you so much, brother. My pleasure. Um, and I got to plug my show yes, if you sure. want more, uh, more Cuba. Uh, I'm on regularly. Thursdays on the This Is Revolution podcast as part of their uh, foreign policy discussion. Um, and depending on how things go, and if history doesn't um, doesn't render it irrelevant, I, I'll have a video essay about Russia-Ukraine security matters um, up early next week. Outstanding. As well. All right, looking forward to that. We'll definitely watch that. Uh, everybody should watch This Is Revolution. Um, we will, uh, be, uh, back, uh, with a little struggle session with Jesse single on Thursday at five 30, Cole James cash at uh, Sunday at noon, uh, all times EST. So thanks everybody for giving us a listen. Thank you again, Cuba left is back.